everyone. I'm Bailey. I'm Drew. And I'm Lacey. And, and we're, we're sarcastic, sarcastic, so let's get sinister. Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. How are you? Good, good. How are you? I'm good. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I know that that really impacts you guys as fathers. Yes. You don't know my life. I feel like I do. Mm. Are you a secret father? You don't. Maybe. All right. I'm not going to tell on the podcast. It's already become derailed. My my hoes are listening. All right, so for Father's Day, like how we did Murderous Mothers for Mother's Day, we are going to do um, another alliteration. It's a little bit more uncomfortable, I feel, saying daddies, but we're doing deadly daddies today. I think it's okay, because you said it like that. I think, deadly you, I think you could say it in a way that would make it weird, and you didn't, so. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um... Moving, great moving, moving away from that. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys about Chris Christopher Watts. And you probably already know about him. That name sounds very familiar. You probably already know about him. Because yeah. he, he is... Are you being serious? or do... Like, I know I know the name, but I can't think of what it's his like story how, is. It's like how she said her... You're doing Scott Peterson. Mm-hmm. And I didn't recognize his name. But then you said the victim's name. And I said, oh, yes, I remember her. Yeah. There was a boat involved, correct? hmm Yes. You, yours is John Sharp? Yeah. I don't know who that is. Yeah. But mine you will probably recognize because it was, um, it took place in, like, 2018. And there's a lot of body cam footage. And a lot of people have analyzed it for body language and stuff. And it's just, there's a lot to, I'm going to be talking to you guys about like what happened, his story, what actually happened. And then I watched like an hour and a half long video about them analyzing the body, body language in the body cam footage. It was very interesting. So I'm just going to jump in because mine's a little on the longer side. As far as, like, our short stories are concerned, it's a little bit longer. So I'm just going to start right now. Ready? Yes. Yes. Okay. So Christopher Lee Watts was born May 16th, 1985 in Spring Lake, Lake, North Carolina. He met Shannon or Shannon. It's S-H-A-N-A-N-N. I think I heard a recording of her dad saying her name, and I, I feel like he's a pretty good source. Okay, so I looked it up, and the Google says it's Shanann. So he met Shanann in 2010. Shanann was in what she described as a really, really, really bad place at the time when Chris sent her a friend request on Facebook. She this is ha- a Facebook romance? Yeah. Aww. She had been dealing with lupus at the time. So she was she'd accepted the request the friend request with the mindset that like she's never going to actually meet him because she didn't expect to live much longer mm-hmm. so she was like it doesn't matter she was kind of like what the hell um so for anyone who doesn't know lupus is an inflammatory disease caused when the immune system attacks its own tissues so it's not good 
But one thing led to another, and they ended up getting married in Mecklenburg County on November 3rd, 2012. Shanann Catherine Rusek, R-Z-U-C-E-K. Sure. Was born January 10th, 1984 in Aberdeen, North Carolina. So after they married, uh, they moved to Colorado and Shanann became pregnant. They welcomed their first daughter, Bella Marie. What was that? Mystery sound. (laughs) (laughs) So they welcomed their first daughter, Bella Marie, on December 17th, 2013. Shortly before Bella's first birthday, Chris and Shanann conceived their second daughter, Celeste Catherine, a.k.a. Cece, was born July 17th, 2015. Shanann became pregnant with a baby boy in the summer of 2018 and planned to name him Nico. Nico. Yeah. I thought it was nice because they're like doing a similar spacing to my yeah. my children. And then it also made me worry because I was like, oh no. This is like right where. <laughs> it's time. It's time for Lewis to murder me. Oh, God. Oh. Well, it's called Deadly Daddies. Did you not know? You know, that would make good content for the podcast. What if I got murdered? Yeah. It would make well, a contact. I'm not a pregnancy, but <laughs> somebody could kill her too. That would work. The family lived in a five bedroom home on Saratoga Trail in Frederick, Colorado. The house was purchased the house was purchased in 2013. Christopher was employed by Anadarko Petroleum as an oil field operator, while Shanann worked from home selling a product called Thrive. For the multi-level marketing company Level, from the outside, the marriage appeared strong and the family appeared happy. However, behind closed doors, things seemed cold and crumbling. Shanann's relationship with her in-laws was strained, and she was feeling negatively towards Chris for quote not having the balls to stand up to his family. Mm. In 2015, the family declared, declared bankruptcy. Although things still seemed okay until 2018. So, from the outside looking in, things still seemed okay. On August 7th, 2018, Shanann texted a friend, quote, He has changed. I don't know who he is. He hasn't touched me all week, kissed me, talked to me, except for when I'm trying to figure out what is wrong. We've never had a problem in our relationship like this. I just want to cry. Hmm. Yeah. Not even... A week after that text, Shanann and the girls disappeared. They were last seen on Monday, August 13th. At approximately 1.48 a.m. on Monday, August 13th, Shanann, returning from a business trip to Arizona, was driven home by her friend and colleague, Nicole Utloft Atkinson. That was a fun watch you stumble through that. That's a big name. Her name is spelled N-I-C-K-O-L-E. So, Nick Ole. She's still alive, so let's not mock her name, but... I wasn't going to. Lacey, you're so much better than Drew. I know. know. Shanann had been gone for the weekend, leaving Chris home with the girls. Later that day, Nicole became concerned about Shanann. She had missed an OB appointment, missed a business meeting, and wasn't responding to text messages. Which, I don't know. How does she know that she missed an OB appointment? Is that what happens when you have friends that live near you? They, like, know when your OB appointments... And then follow up with the office to see if you showed up or not. Yeah, or... Yeah. 
Because I guess she, her knowing that she missed a business meeting, they were colleagues. Yeah. It's weird for her to know that she missed the OB appointment unless she called the office and was like, did she come in? Yeah. Anyway. Nicole went to the Watts residence at around 12.10 p.m. When the doorbell and knocks went unanswered, Nicole called Chris, then the Frederick Police Department. Chris had been at work but left and rushed home. A police officer arrived at the house to conduct a welfare check at around 1.40 p.m., so about 12 hours after they were last seen. Moving very quickly for a missing adult. I feel like usually it takes longer before well, people are worried enough to, like... Probably because of the kids. No, they too. weren't. I yeah. think... Well, I think that... Because they showed up for a welfare check, not for, oh, like, a missing person. You can call in a welfare check and they'll do it right now. Usually. Unless they're busy. But, like... Should we do that? Just be... Who do you want to check on? Us? No. Okay. Because I think you can get in trouble for falling in false stuff like that. There is... So this is where the body cam footage is from, when the police show up to do the welfare check. Um, I feel like I've seen the body cam footage for this. Yes. It's... Yeah. Many people have seen it. It's... Very telling of his It's been issue. the subject of much speculation by psychologists and body language experts. Like, everybody is watching it because... I'll tell you why later. Yeah. So, Chris gives permission to the police to search the home. And during the search, the only occupant in the house was a family dog who was unharmed. What kind of dog? It was a little dog. I didn't... I don't know what kind of dog it was, but um, in the body cam footage, Chris says... To the officer, he's going to go in and put the dog out in the backyard. Mm -hmm. And you can see him pick up the dog and take it out. So it's like a little, like a terrier or a chihuahua or something small like that. Um, Police found many items that would indicate that Shanann didn't leave the house on her own volition. In the home, police found Shanann's purse containing her keys and her children's medications, her cell phone, and her wedding ring. Oh boy. And in the garage, Shanann's car was found with both girls' car seats still inside. The following day, the FBI and Colorado Borough of Inv- Investigation joined the investigation. Chris had told the police that he saw he last saw Shanann at 5.15 a.m. on Monday when he left for work. Chris gave interviews to news stations while on his porch, and during the interview, he pleads for the return of his wife and daughters. I watched an analysis of the interview by Dr. Catherine Coleman, a psychologist. She observed his behavior, and verbally he appeared to be very calm, while physically he was fidgeting, rocking back and forth, seemed very antsy. So Dr. Catherine Coleman noticed that he was speaking about his daughters in the past tense, which is never a good sign. And body language experts on a panel show called the Behavior Panel analyzed the footage as well, and pointed out several interesting things. Throughout the footage, Chris avoids eye contact and walks away while answering questions, almost as if he's running away from the question. They also pointed out his asymmetrical movements, his mismatched illustrators, and his eyebrow movement. Asymmetrical? Asymmetrical movements. So, like... When, instead of, like, when he's talking with his hands, instead of being, like, symmetrical like this, mm-hmm. he'll be, like, which is more... Oh, weird. They, I believe, I, it took, I didn't watch the video very recently, but I believe that that's, like, an indicator that he's telling a story. I mean, just you, like, doing it, like, diagonally. It seemed like very this. comfortable. 
theatrical. Yes. Um, and then the mismatch illustrators, I actually wrote this down. So when retelling a truthful story, the words should match the body language. When they are mismatched, it indicates the story is being made up. So like when I'm telling you a story, if I'm saying something and doing the movement afterwards or before, if I'm like, so I went to the store or, and then I went to the store, that's a mismatch illustrator. If I'm moving my hand at a different time that I'm telling you the story, that means that my, the, my, my, um, trying to think of a good way to explain it my brain is like making up the story and it's taking a minute for my my body like catch up verb my mouth my words and my physical movements Mm -hmm. to match up okay but if i'm remembering a story then it's it's yeah it's much more on top of things yeah and his eyebrows he's just moving them off they're like in his hair sounds super suspicious Oh, that, so the behavior panel was that hour and a half long body language panel show that I watched, and they covered some, I think, interrogation footage from Scott Peterson. Oh, that's what you're So, yeah, so I think that if you're interested, it's very interesting to watch them talk. Um, I also watched something that I found very interesting. At one point in the original body cam footage, a neighbor offers to help check his security footage. So you may have seen this too. This was like a real big like, whoa. So the body cam footage shows the security footage on the TV and Chris watching it. And he's standing on the left of the officer. So it's Chris, the officer's in the middle, and then the neighbor's over here. The neighbor's camera is pointed at his own driveway. But in the background, you can see the Watts' driveway. Okay. Um, in the video, you you never see Shanann leaving the house. Mm. Um, what you do see is Chris, whose truck is parked on the street. He backs his truck up to the garage, pulls it into the garage so you can't really see what he's loading. and then you But you do see him loading stuff into the bed. And then you see him drive away. And this is after that 5.15 or whenever he said was the last time he saw her? Yeah. Interesting. Lisa loading potatoes, guys. Like, Well, that's not what he says. He's loading. Oh. I didn't hear that part. Well, well, I haven't told you yet. You're jumping ahead. I'm sorry. Lisa Lockwood, a crime analyst. Mystery sound. (laughs) Pointed out that as soon as Chris is seen on camera... He begins offering up explanations as to what he was doing. Mm. He's so like the they're watching the security footage and he is just like standing there being like, and I'm doing this and I'm doing and that's me doing that. And yeah, I don't usually park on the street, but there's been a lot of break ins. So she's like explaining away yeah. everything. They're what watching. do you feel like you need to explain, Chris? Exactly. Um. He described what he was loading into the bed of his truck. And it's important to keep in mind the whole time he's fidgeting. He's got his hands. Doesn't know what to do with his hands. Exactly. And Dr. Coleman pointed out that these are obvious signs of discomfort. And the behavioral panel pointed out that Chris was exhibiting signs of being in fight or flight mode. Interesting. He was unconsciously eyeing the exits subconsciously. Not unconsciously. <laughs> he was awake. He was awake. And he was subconsciously eyeing the exits. He kept looking behind him at the door. 
Um, and then they said he was venting, which is him breathing heavily and putting his hands on his head, trying to get rid of all the excess because he's stressed out. Um, I thought it was interesting that he kept putting his hands on his head, kind of like when police are arresting you, they say, put your hands on your head. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. I wonder if that was subconscious. Yeah. Um, I did go down a rabbit hole oh boy. Uh, on body language during this. So it was actually an hour and 40 minute analysis of his body language. They pointed out so many things that he was doing that made it obvious that he was nervous, uncomfortable, uncomfortable, and he was scrambling. So then it was noted by Lisa Lockwood, the crime analyst, that Chris is kind of casually watching the footage, looking at his phone, and like occasionally glancing up to look at the screen. He doesn't give the impression that he's desperate to find his wife and kids. Because like I think if you genuinely didn't know where they went, you'd be, you'd be glued the to the screen looking for anything. He wasn't. He was on his phone. He was kind of, he again, he was looking at the exits. He was moving around a lot. Maybe he had to beat his Candy Crush level. Fair. He did leave work suddenly, so maybe he was checking in. Yeah. So, after they're done watching the footage, Chris leaves the house. But the neighbor says something to the officer that I thought was interesting. He says, quote, he's not acting right at all. He doesn't look worried. He looks like he's trying to cover his tracks. And if he's loading his stuff, why isn't he walking back and forth? But I can't see what he's doing in the back of the truck because he pulled into the garage. And he knows my camera's there. He never talks. So the fact that he's over here blabbing his mouth makes me kind of suspicious. Like this neighbor just straight up called him out. Yeah. And it's such a good thing that he was right because otherwise, be real if he was wrong, he'd be like, Meh. But I just <laughs> like that the the... The body language was so obvious that even the neighbor, a layperson, was able to be like, Something's he's wrong. fucking weird. Yeah. Something's up. So, as a result of all of Chris's suspicious behavior, police start to focus on him. What? Surprise. What? The husband always did it. As we look at her husband? Yeah. Lacey's husband isn't here, so she's just I'm eyeing both, both of ours. The room. So, um, they bring Chris in to interview, and he agrees to do a polytech craft test on august 15th so just to remind you she was last seen on august 13th i believe yes monday august 13th so they bring him in for a polygraph on august 15th he fails terribly because in the words of dr coleman he's not a good liar <laughs> that would be a reason to fail yeah, that's... when fbi agents called him out on the failed test he admitted that he was having an affair. In July, Chris began a relationship with Nicole Kessinger. Chris and Nicole met through work. They had a highly sexual relationship, and Chris was described as being a lovesick puppy. Blech. Chris tells the agents that he was in love with Nikki, and Shanann was suspicious. Well, she's sure. your wife, so... Yeah. The agents used something called the John Green method, where they try to be friends with the suspect. They give him a lot of positive reinforcement and offer him outs. So this is like the type of situation where they're like, yeah, like, no, we get it. Like, you are in love with Nikki. Your wife didn't understand. So what's the guy to do? Obviously, you got into a fight with her. Like, that's, we get Just it. Just tell us what happened. Yeah, that kind of stuff. It'll be okay. 
Agents did allow Chris's father, Ronnie, to come into the interview room and talk to Chris. That's when Chris tells his father that on the morning of Shanann's disappearance, he asked her for a separation. Chris tells his father, quote, I don't want to protect her. She hurt them. Mm. So he's going to make it seem like she... Yeah. Mm. He tells a lot of stories. First, he doesn't know what happened to him. Yeah. This time, he asked for a separation and Shanann killed the girls. Chris goes on to say that Shanann smothered or choked them and that he didn't hear anything. In this scenario, and I call it a scenario because it's a story, Chris wants everyone to believe that he and Shanann got into an emotional fight about separating, and while he went went downstairs, Shanann murdered their daughters. He said he went back upstairs and they were gone. He said, I freaked out and did the same thing to her. Those were my kids. Yeah. So he went downstairs, she killed the girls, he came up, the girls were just No, 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 he went downstairs. Yeah. Shanann murdered the children. Mm -hmm. He went upstairs. They were dead. So he was like, yeah, they were my kids. And he attacked Shanann. I thought you meant he came upstairs and the girls were no longer there. And I was like, his story is very... No, no, no. He killed Shanann because she killed the girls. Yes. And then, as anyone would do in this situation, he decided to dispose of all three of their bodies. Yes. I mean, if you're disposing of one, you might as well just... Yeah. Dispose the other one. Obviously. Also, I really enjoyed your Chris impersonation. Which one? I don't I don't remember it at all. Oh, <laughs> thank you. He tells agents through sobs oh boy. that he was so scared and he didn't know what else to do. Call the police? No, That's you have silly. to dispose of the bodies. Oh, okay. So while he's saying this, his dad is rubbing his back Ugh. in a way to try and comfort him because like this, he believes him. I think that's kind of fair at first. Yeah. Like, you wouldn't expect but that your kid killed Knowing him, like, what happened, I'm like, you piece of shit is, are getting comforted for being yeah. a big fat liar. So, uh, Dr. Coleman, again, points out at this point that when a mother kills her children or a child, it's usually due to one of these reasons. A psychotic break, substance abuse, or postpartum complications. None of those factors were present in Chris's story. I don't know why I wrote this, but the good doctor goes on to point out, I don't know why I called her a good doctor. Mm -hmm. The good doctor goes on to point out that, quote, most people will call the police, not kill their spouse and hide all the bodies and try to pretend none of this happened. Yeah. Well, he's not most people. No, he's special. He's He's going to fix the problem. I think mm, we'll get to my theory afterwards. Law enforcement, surprisingly, did not believe Chris's story. What? And he was arrested on August 15th. In what I consider to be the cherry on top of the fuck you Sunday to Chris, he was fired on that day, too. (laughs) Nice. Like, hey, we just heard you were arrested. Um, Your services are no longer required here. You know what else would have been better, too, is if What's-Her-Face dumped him. Well, we'll get into her side of the story in a little bit. But I don't hold anything against her. She, I believe, I'm not sure, but I'm... I believe she was under the impression that they were already separated and were going through a divorce Aww. at the time that they sparked their relationship up. I've got a similar thing. And I don't think that she knew he had kids. Yeah, we'll get to it. But she's, she's, okay. don't hold anything against her. So. Maybe I will. After they arrested Chris, law enforcement, law, law enforcement, <laughs> law, 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 law enforcement did find the bodies of Shanann, Bella, and Cece where Chris described them on August 16th. Shanann was buried... Buried? Buried? Buried. 
She's buried. Either way. Buried? We'll say it both ways. I feel like I say buried. Okay. But why did I say buried? I don't I don't you have any answers for you. Accent. That's really weird. What is that accent? I don't know. Buried. Whatever. Shanann was buried in a shawl. In a shawl. In a shawl? <laughs> Shanann was buried in a shallow grave near an oil storage facility. Bella and Cece's bodies were found in oil drums. Oh. Their bodies had been pushed through an eight-inch diameter opening. Why? Like that, maybe? Do you know how big eight inches is? Well, this is a ruler. That's 12. So, there. For everybody listening, she didn't just pull up a ruler. She just held her hands out. <laughs> distance from She's each other. She's clearly said, a carpenter, This Lacey. is a ruler. She works with rulers all the time. I'm a scientist. She didn't have any kind of evidence for us other than her. And diameter is the Circle. full. It's the full length. Yeah. Radius is half. So, yeah. Anyway. that's That was the size of the opening at the top of the drum that their bodies were pushed through. Bella had scratches on her left buttock from being shoved through this hole, and a tuft of blonde hair was found on the edge of one of the hatches. This is, um... This is dark. I don't have any answers for you. And not funny, because how serious this case is, but it's giving me, like, uh, you know in the office when, like, the bird dies and Dwight's trying to shove it in the can? Oh, that's sad, but also funny. It's funny scene, but when it's related to this, it's yeah, yeah. Um, Dark humor. <laughs> for the record, Bella was five, and Cece was three. Mm-hmm. Just so that you know, were they together in the same oil drum? At least that is a good question. The answer is no. He Aww. put them in two separate ones, and I believe that there is speculation as to why he did that later on. So, Chris was officially charged with five counts of first-degree murder on August 21st. Five? Because Bella and Cece were under the age of 12, Chris received an extra count of murder for each of oh, them. Oh, interesting. I like so that. So, one, yeah. one count for murdering Shanann, two for Bella, and two for Cece. He was also charged with the unlawful termination of a pregnancy and three counts oh. of tampering with a dead body. I forgot she was pregnant. Yes. At first, he was denied bail, but later he was given a $5 million bail. Chris agreed to a plea deal and pleaded guilty to all charges in, ex- in exchange for the death penalty being taken off the table. On November 6th, 2018, Chris was sentenced to five life sentences without the possibility of parole, as well as 48 years for unlawful termination of a pregnancy and 36 years for tampering with the bodies. How many years is that total? That's a whole well, bunch of Well, five life sentences with... You're doing the math. Well, yeah, I don't know how long a life sentence is. It's either 20 or 25, I think. I think it's 25. So that's over so 100 years. 25 right times 5. 125. Plus 48 plus 36. 209 years. Oh, okay. On December 3rd, 2018, due to security concerns, Chris was moved out of state to Dodge Correctional Institution at a maximum security prison in Wapoon, Wisconsin. Wapoon. You always look at me with the words. I don't know what the word is. Lewis was just in Wisconsin. Hey, Lou. What is W-A-U-P-U-N? It's in Wisconsin. Wapoon. He knows, because he was just in Wisconsin. Yes. After sentencing, Chris contacted authorities and wanted to give more details. He claimed that during the fight, he was on top of Shanann in bed, telling her he didn't love her, and began to strangle her. After she was dead, Bella entered the room and asked what was wrong with Mommy. 
At this point, Chris needed to kill Bella because she was a witness. Yeah, so he's completely changing the story. The story is totally flipped. Yeah. Wait, she's five? Is she the five or the three-year-old? Bella's the five-year-old, and and she's a witness. She's a witness. So she's got to be taken out. Later, while in prison... Shake your head to that. Chris found God, of course, and began writing letters to an author. In them, he said he was ready to fully confess. Oh. He was very detailed, and as he described exactly what happened, included, including how he actually had planned the murders, how he had to kill his t- kids twice, and how much loathing he had towards Shanann. He sent this to an author? Yeah. So he just wanted... I- I'm not saying that it wasn't the true confession, but he was like, alright, it's time that I get some credit for what I did. Write a book about me. Yeah. He detailed that he and Shanann got into an argument when he said he wanted to separate to pursue a new relationship with Nicole Kessinger. An excerpt from one letter is this. I know physically I'm behind these walls, but my spirit is free with Christ. Ugh. Christ does not like you. Christ is angry with you. That was just a little excerpt. Do you speak for Christ over there? I feel confident in this sense. This is a, another part. I don't know if you want this in the book or if God does, but here are things I left out. Oh, God. One, August 12th, when I finished putting the girls to bed, I walked away and said, that's the last time I'm going to tuck, be tucking my babies in. I knew what I was going to do, or I knew what was going to happen the day before and I did nothing to stop it I was numb to the entire world I'd literally taken my kids to a birthday party played with water balloons had an amazing time sang songs all the way home gave them a bath a shower ate dinner read bedtime stories and sang bedtime songs and still nothing registered when Shanann had to be somewhere I always enjoyed taking the girls places or playing outside because it was our opportunity to bond and still the night before, I couldn't stop myself from what I knew would occur the next morning. But you could have if you tried a lot. Two, August 13th, morning of. I went to the girls' room first, before Shanann and I had our argument. I went to Bella's room, then C- Cece's room, and used a pillow from their beds to kill them. Mm. That's why the cause of death was smothering. After I left Cece's room, then I climbed in bed with Shanann, and our argument ensued. After Shanann had passed, Bella and Cece woke up back up. I'm not sure how they woke back up, but they did. Bella's eyes were bruised, and both girls looked like they had been through trauma. That made the act that much worse, knowing I went to their rooms first, and knowing I still took their lies at the location of the batteries. 3. The reason the medical examiner found oxycodone in Shanann's system is because I gave it to her. I thought it would be easier to be with Nicole if Shanann wasn't pregnant. In another letter... So that was what he wrote to the author. Mm. So now this story is that he was trying to terminate the pregnancy before, and then he killed the daughters, and then killed Shanann, and then the girls woke up, so he went and killed them again. In another letter, Watts described killing Shanann. Isn't it weird how I look back and what I remember so much is her face getting all black and with streaks of mascara? All the weeks of me thinking about killing her, and now I was faced with it. When she started to get drowsy, I somehow knew how to squeeze the jugular veins until it cut off the blood flow to her brain, and she passed out. I knew if I took my hands off of her, she would still keep me from Nikki. They asked me why she couldn't fight back. It's because she couldn't fight back. Her eyes filled with blood as she looked at me, and she died. I knew she was gone when she relieved herself. Watts said... That, to his surprise, his daughters came walking into the room while he was wrapping Shanann in a a bedsheet and began asking what was wrong with their mom. He told them that she wasn't feeling well. Watts said he tried to carry Shanann's body downstairs, but she was too heavy and he lost his grip. 
He ended up dragging her down the steps and then bundled her in the back of the truck. Watts said, the girls were just kind of running around the house and watching me with scared looks on their faces. Bella started to cry, and when she did, Celeste started whimpering. What a nightmare this was. Oh, I thought oh, it was really so hard for him. him. I realize now the girls getting up and walking around may have been God's third attempt to stop what I was doing. He said that his overwhelming feeling was being so mad that they were still alive. He then drove with his wife's body, her face and feet wrapped in garbage bags, and his two daughters to a remote oil field owned by his then-employer, Anadarko. He then packed his lunch, a shovel, and rack, rake, not rack, along with a gas can, which led the FBI to subsequently ask whether he was considering suicide. Quote, the FBI asked me if I was going to take my own life, and I told them I thought about it, but honestly, no, I was not going to take my own life. He recalled that it took him an hour to drive to the site where he methodically killed both of his daughters. Quote, I dumped Shanann on the ground, and then I walked back to the truck with the blanket that Celeste was holding. I put it over her head and smothered her. I couldn't believe how easily it was to just let her drop through the hole and let her go. I heard the splash as she hit the oil. How he killed his eldest daughter, Bella, after he had watched him murder and dispose of his sister, he spoke of his surprise that little quiet Bella had a, a will to live. Oh. Out of all three, Bella was the only one that put up a fight. I will hear her soft little voice for the rest of my life saying, Daddy, no. She knew that what I was going to do. She knew what I was doing to her. She may not have understood death, but she knew I was killing her. He said that he intentionally separated their bodies and put them in the tanks so they wouldn't get up a second time. Regarding Shanann's burial, when I dug the hole, it seemed a lot deeper than it was. As I pulled on the sheet, she rolled out and into the hole. I think she had given birth. She landed face down. I remember being so angry with her that I was not going to change how she landed. So he was so mad at her, he wasn't going to position her in a more, in a better way. I mean, he just like tossed her in like trash. The autopsy report confirmed that Shanann's amniotic sac was protruding from her vaginal area. The report also confirmed causes of death, while also noting that both children had crude oil in their throats, stomachs, and lungs. Because Chris actually changed his story about four times, so let's keep track. First, he didn't know where they were. Then Shanann killed the girls. Then he killed them all in a fit of rage. And finally, he planned the murders weeks in advance. So, four different stories. People aren't sure what to believe. Dr. Coleman believes it was an impulsive, it was impulsive and he shows real regret in killing his daughters but felt that if he wanted to start a new life with Nicole, he needed them all to be gone. Lisa Lockwood, the crime analyst, disagrees and wholly believes the murders were premeditated. Nicole Kessinger, the girlfriend, mm -hmm. following the murders, was placed in witness protection and is now living in a different state under a new identity. Oh. After Shanann and her daughters were killed, Nicole contacted police and spoke with them for nearly two hours on August 16th. Kessinger told investigators that she and Watts met at work and began talking outside of the office around late May. A few weeks later, their relationship became sexual. So he had only been with her for like two months when he decided he needed to yeah. like kill his whole family to be with her. Right. She claimed that Watts had told her his marriage was over and did not mention his daughters or the fact that his wife was pregnant with their third child. So he, she was under the impression that he was married, no kids, and they were divorcing. So, that concludes 
what I have. Yeah. So I guess, like, what do you guys think? Do you think he planned it? Do you think it was all a fit of rage? Do you think well, before what I, he was writing to the author was true? Yeah, before that, I think it's a little bit weird that she's in witness protection. Because I feel like the only person she might be in danger from would be him. And he's, like, well, in jail. I, guess, I think that... Um, break out. Well, I, yeah. I read somewhere that she's getting a lot of hate. Probably. Because oh. she's the other woman. Oh, so people are being the way that people are. Yes. That that does make sense. So, Lacey, premeditated, which one do you think? What do you think happened? Okay. Really? So I'm I'm stuck. Because I've heard of this before and I did see like a video like about his body language like when the cops came and like searched. Um and the voiceover was saying something about the fact that like he's he was so nervous and acting that way because he didn't expect to get caught that fast. Yeah, that's what I think. I think that he thought he would have more time. Because, like, to I mean, as you said, like, the house was, yeah. like, there was clearly her stuff was all around. And it was just the leave. friend got suspicious. Yeah. yeah. I think that his plan was to dispose of the bodies, go to work, so that there wouldn't be, like, well, he wasn't at work that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then come home and clean up the house to make it look like maybe they ran away. Yeah. They had an argument. She took the kids and left. Yeah. Because, like, her car was still there. The car seats were still there. Which, by the way, he didn't move the car seats. So he transported his daughters without car seats. What a yeah. dick. Yeah, that's bad, too. <laughs> what a bad dad. Of all the things. So you know what? Even if he didn't do everything else, that's a deadly guy. His should be in car seats. Yes. End of story. I think it's premeditated. I think he planned it. Yeah. I don't think he planned it well. No. No. But I think he planned it. And I, I feel like what he was writing to the author was a little exaggerated, but I think that story was the closest to the truth that he's told. I think that um, the story that it was all just spur of the moment isn't true seems like every time he told it he embellished a little bit more yeah i don't know i don't like i don't think that he killed his daughters twice no because i would find it very hard to believe that he could get away with doing that while shanann was still alive you know what really pisses me off about him besides the fact that he's a douchebag um among other things yeah the fact that he kills the like his wife first unless his daughters go through all of that terror yeah and they had the nerve to to have a will to live like ugh, fuck off why would you kill them my my last little bit that i just wanted to point out was remember when i told you guys about terry jindusa nikolai mm-hmm. she was the one who was um her husband her ex-husband yeah and he had the girls in the car too i found a lot of similarities yeah so one the husband attempted to, or successfully, murdered their pregnant spouse mm-hmm. by strangulation. Mm-hmm. Both women were loaded loaded into the bed of the truck to be transported to a secondary location. Both men loaded their two daughters into the cab of the truck alive, and both men were caught really quickly. Interesting. My, um, I'm not going next, but my husband... Uh, his and both women were pregnant with boys. <gasps> My victim was pregnant with a boy. What was yours pregnant with? Boy. 
Okay, so no one get pregnant with boys, because okay. that's gonna... Your husband doesn't want you anymore. I don't understand why people who decide they're done with their families can't just... Done with their families. Like, divorce <laughs> divorce your wife. Right, get divorced. Go ahead and be a deadbeat dad. But, like, you don't have to kill your whole family to move on. Well, no. Then he would feel guilty about abandoning them. Well, I feel like he should feel guilty about this. Uh, yeah. Say, hey, Nicole, you want to move across the country so I can pretend I don't have I a family? I also wonder, wonder, do you think that she was on the same page with their relationship? Two, Two months, months How old, How know. old was she? She was, like, his age. If not I feel like the younger she was, the more likely she would be to delusional and be like, like swept or, up in the, yeah. the romance. Well, they call they they describe the relationship as highly sexual, and he was lovesick. So it wasn't like a oh they were in love, they were over the moon for each other. It was like he was obsessed with her. Yeah, it's good sex. Yeah, very physical. All right. So that was Chris Watts. That was my. The deadly daddy that I wanted to cover. Oh, didn't want to cover, but felt like I should. Somebody chose him, though. I know. I just, I didn't want to say my deadly daddy, because he is... It also, when you put my in front of anything daddy, it gets weird. Yeah, I agree. That's why I didn't say that, and I tried to change it up. Um. So, who wants to go next? Lacey, you want to go next? Now? Yes. Okay. I'm going to tell you guys about Scott Peterson. Tell us. And I'll tell you first why I chose Scott Peterson. I already know why. His wife's name was Lacey. Oh, God. And this happened when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. And it was on the I'm news. I saying this happened when I was named Lacey. Um, and it was on the news, and everybody at school was like, Lacey? Like Lacey Peterson. And uh, so the case has stuck with me. So are you saying you're named after her? No, I don't know if you listened to the timeline. No, I didn't. She, you could have changed your name. I'm just... No, I like it. And I also spelled it the right way. But we're not going to criticize her. How did she, she spell it? L-A-C-I. L-A-C-I? Mm-hmm. Oh. Is she passed? Yes. Okay, well, maybe don't talk shit on her. I'm not. I, I said... I you, her. She looks right at She home. said I spelled my name the right way. Yeah. But she's dead, so we're not going to criticize her. I followed it up with that. You cut off too early. Ready? Lacey Peterson was born Lacey Denise Rocha on May 4th, 1975. Lacey Denise Rocha. Rocha. 90% sure I'm saying that correctly. Okay. Um, her parents were Sharon and Dennis. She had an older brother named Brent and then had, who was four years older than her, sister Amy, a half-sister Amy, who was um, six or seven years younger than her. Uh, her parents divorced, and Sharon, the mom, moved with the kids to Modesto, California. It doesn't say exactly when they divorced, or exactly when she remarried her new husband, Ron Gransky, but he was in the kids' lives since Lacey was two, um, and they had a good relationship. He was very much like a father figure to the kids. The kids still visited their dad. They weren't like geographically super close to him anymore. Um, he had a dairy farm. They would go with him on the weekends. So, she was a cheerleader in high school. After high school, she attended California Polytechnic State University. Polytechnic? Yes. Majoring in ornamental horticulture. Graduated in 1997. Is that plants? What? Don't ask me what that means. Okay. Ornamental horticulture. Can you look it up? I'll Google it. Continue. So, meanwhile, Scott Peterson was born Scott Lee Peterson on October 24th, 1972 in San Diego. So he was three years older than Lacey. Um, his parents were Lee and Jackie. His parents had six children from previous relationships. Scott was their only child together. Yes. So ornamental horticulture 
it consists of floriculture and landscape horticulture, which it's basically just growing and marketing plants and associated activities of flower arrangement and landscape design. The turf industry is considered a part of ornamental horticulture. So flower arranging, gardening, making your house look nice. Cool. Bailey? When you say that they had six kids from different marriages, is that like six kids total and they each... Or like they Brady Bunch style, had... or oh, between the two of them, they oh, had six okay. kids. Yeah, and it was a little bit confusing. Brady Bunch style, because then I read that like later when Scott was an adult, like two of Jackie's kids, I think that they had given some up. One or two of them had given some up for adoption. They found them again when they were older. Oh, it was very confusing. It's not necessarily important to the story, right? Um, family had a two-bedroom apartment in San Diego. Yeah, I wrote in here that he loved gold. I meant to write he loved golf. Oh, I love gold, too. Who doesn't love gold? He dreamed of being a professional golfer. Uh, In high school, he was actually teammates with Phil Mickelson. I don't know if you recognize the name or not. Yes. I don't follow golf at all, but that was a name that I knew. He's like, yeah. Very famous. That's a name that people know. does not look good. No, I think he was recently, well, not recently, but he, in, in the course of his celebrity, he was diagnosed with some condition and then he started, like, being the advocate of that condition. Yeah, look it up. Yeah. yeah. I just remember his name because some I once got confused because I thought it was Nicholson, mm-hmm. like Jack. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Jack Nicholson is golfing? Mm-hmm. Professionally? Sure. Not the case. I know him because I worked at a golf club. So. I'll also be honest, up until this point, I thought it was still Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I googled it as Phil Nicholson, and Google was like, I think you mean Mickelson. You dumb, dumb girl. So anyway, so they went to high school together, and they played golf together, and so he had this dream of becoming a professional golfer. Um, In 1990, he got into Arizona State University on a partial golf scholarship. His father later said that he felt very discouraged by the competition. Phil Mickelson went there as well. There were other just really excellent golfers there, and he felt like he really couldn't compete yeah um chip couch who was the father of a teammate discovered that scott took his underage son out drinking complained to the golf coach and scott was kicked off of the golf team Ooh, scott yeah um and then not too long after that he transferred to cuesta college and then california polytechnic state university which is where Lacey went oh yes he planned to major in international business he graduated with a degree in agricultural business so his plans changed a little bit in there he had arthritis oh phil mickelson yeah okay cool um scott was a model student and uh, professors later said that there was one professor i didn't write his name but said that he would have liked to have a class full of scott peterson's because he was such a good student okay so Scott worked at Pacific Cafe, which was a restaurant in Morrow Bay. He worked there during college. This is how Lacey and Scott met. Lacey had a friend who worked there, so she would visit the restaurant frequently. In 1994, she gave Scott her number and then told her mom that she had met the man she would marry. Aww. He called her. They started dating. He, um quit his he still had dreams of being a professional golfer when even when he transferred schools but at this point he quits and started focusing on his career 
um, building his career, graduating college. They got married August 9th, 1997. Lacey then graduated in December and Scott would graduate the following spring. So while after Lacey graduated, while Scott was finishing his senior year that last semester, Lacey took a job in Prunedale, California, which was about two hours away. Later, prosecutors would say that this is when Scott had his first affair. His first? Yeah, I yes, don't love... immediately after they got married. And she moved to work while he was finishing school. Well, she wasn't there yeah. to perform her wifely duties. How was he supposed to meet his needs? How was he supposed to get by? Only one thing to do. Fuck around. And find out. June of 1998, Scott graduated. They actually... They opened up a sports bar called The Shack... Sorry, who did? Um, Scott and Lacey. As a couple, they opened up a sports bar I called The Shack. I don't love the name The Shack. Okay. Don't go there. You can't. They close it. <laughs> um, eventually, or not eventually, after a few years, they decided to move to Modesto, which is where Lacey had grown up after her parents split. Um, so they sold The Shack. So in October of 2000, they bought their home in Modesto. Three bed, two bath in California. They were able to buy for $177,000. What year was this? 2000. So like I know it wasn't recent, but it still makes me angry. Okay. Uh, according to Lacey's family, she really loved being a wife. She kind of threw herself into the role. She started working as a substitute teacher. She liked watching Martha Stewart. She liked reading housekeeping magazines. She liked cooking and cleaning and just like kind of typical housework stuff while still working. So she felt like she was contributing a little bit financially. Scott got a job as a fertilizer salesman, which paid him about $5,000 a month. So he's bringing in about $60,000 a year in 2000. So, you look so... You okay? For, for, for a, a fertilizer salesman. $5,000 a month. Yeah, I don't... That's all I know about it. I'm in the wrong business. You want to start fertilizing? I mean, if it's for $5,000 a month, yeah. Um, in 2002, Lacey becomes pregnant with their first child. Her due date is February 10th, 2023. I thought she was talking in the third person. There. I keep doing that, too. <laughs> like, Lacey's pregnant. When she was saying that, like... Lacey went to, like, graduated school, or that's the school that Lacey went to. I was like, no, it's no, not. not. <laughs> uh, they dis- discovered they were having a baby boy, and they named him Connor. Aww. Yes. So, so, she's due February 2023. December 2002. So, about two months before she's due. December 23rd, two days before Christmas, Lacey and Scott went to the salon where her sister Amy worked. Every month they would go and she would cut Scott's hair and they would just kind of hang out and chat. Um, At 8.30 that evening, Lacey called her mom. They talked on the phone. Uh, So the last people who saw Lacey were her sister, her mom, her husband. The next day, Christmas Eve, Scott said that he left at 9.30 in the morning to go fishing at Berkeley Marina. When he left, he said that Lacey was watching Martha Stewart and she was preparing to do some cleaning, some baking, and go walk the dog. Originally, he didn't mention the cleaning. He said that she was going to be doing some baking and going to walk the dog later. The dog was a golden retriever named Mackenzie. Hey. Yes. Both our victims had dogs. Later that day, the dog was seen wandering the neighborhood. One neighbor said he saw Mackenzie out and about while he was out playing catch with his dog. Another neighbor saw Mackenzie outside and actually went over and got her and let her into the Peterson's backyard around 10.30 a.m. So she saw the dog. She was like, oh, you shouldn't be outside. Let me put you in the backyard. And- you were going to say, oh, you little shit. <laughs> 2.15 p.m., Scott leaves a voicemail for Lacey. He said, hey, beautiful, it's 2.25. I'm leaving Berkeley. That's a good way to toss an alibi out there. 
with the exact time. And also call your wife beautiful legs. Yeah, nothing's wrong. I love you so much. That actually reminded me. I know that we've moved off of the case that I just did. But um, it reminded me in the body cam footage. They were like, what time did you leave for work? And he was like, um, like 1.30, or 4.30, 4.20-ish. Like something, like a vague number like that. And they were like, and what time did um Shanann get home? And he was like, 1.48. He knew the exact time she came home. Yeah. That was a, that was another thing that was like maybe he's just what? really observant about her movements. Just hers? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, back to Scott and Lacey. So Scott said when he returned home the house was empty, Lacey's car was in the driveway and Mackenzie was in the backyard. Mackenzie's the name of their dog. Yes. Scott then went to a neighbor's house to ask if the neighbor had seen Lacey. The neighbor and his wife testified that Scott told them he had been golfing that day. Interesting. That's not what he said he was doing. After he talked to the neighbor who hadn't seen Lacey, he called Sharon, her mom, to ask if Lacey was with her. Um, Sharon became concerned. At this point, Scott and Lacey's stepfather, Ron, reported her missing just before 6 p.m. At this time, Lacey is seven and a half months pregnant. So the detectives assigned to the case were Detectives Alan Brocchini, or Brocchini. I'm going to say Brocchini. It's CCH. Brocchini. Okay. And John Bueller. As in Ferris. Mm -hmm. Um, So they go, they check out the house. Her keys, wallet, sunglasses, purse were all in the house. Bueller said that Scott's demeanor was strange. He was arrogant. He was distant, impatient, irritable. He didn't seem very disturbed that his very pregnant wife was missing. Later, relatives, because a lot of relatives gathered at the house that night, said that he did not seem particularly concerned about Lacey being missing. However, his in-laws were very supportive of him. They didn't suspect anything of him well, immediately. Maybe, I mean, everyone, like, handles it a different way. Yeah. So yeah. maybe they were giving him the benefit of the doubt, but still... They probably also didn't expect him to be the one who did it. So whether or not they thought his behavior was strange, they didn't really say, but they were very much like, all right... Lacey's missing. We're all going to work together and figure this out. Um, Detectives were suspicious of him because of his demeanor, but they claim they didn't immediately jump to him as a suspect. I don't think that's necessarily true, but they say they didn't treat it as foul play immediately. Um, On December 30th, so she went missing Christmas Eve. December 30th, a woman named Amber Frey went to the police and told them that she had been having an affair with Scott Peters. Oh, no. They met in December, and he told her that... He was single. Um, she got suspicious for some reason and asked him, hey, do you have a wife? And he said, actually, I'm a widower. This was two weeks before Lacey disappeared. Okay, so he's Maybe it was wishful thinking. Preparing. Yes. Yep, he said he was a widower. This was going to be his first Christmas without his wife. Police later said this shows that the murder was premeditated. Yeah, he the, Whatever wrong. happened was premeditated. I would like to say there's... I don't know if it's just because the the two men that we've covered so far are just like similar or if it's just this is how men who murder their wives behave. <laughs> but lots of similarities. Yes, I was thinking that when you were doing yours. So when she found out that his wife was alive and well and now missing and he was a person of interest, she immediately went to the police and was like, hey, I got to tell you this stuff. 
Um, in January, two prior extramarital affairs were discovered, which I said the first one they think was like right after they got married when Lacey moved away to work. Um, in a January 24th press conference, Lacey's family publicly withdrew their support of Scott. Good. Because they had now learned about the affairs. They publicly withdrew their support. Yeah. It's like a... They made a point to make sure everybody knew. We are no longer supporting him. Yeah. It's like a uh, political... Campaign? Yeah. Um, there were, like, pictures of him with Amber. She, after she went to the police, she agreed to like have phone conversations of him that were recorded so after all this the family was like oh we don't trust him anymore yeah she agreed to help out yeah um scott was still trying to make it seem like she had just left but the detectives after talking to her friends and family felt it was out of character for her to disappear without contacting her family um in the first two days after she went missing there were up to 900 people helping look for her and this was before the media was giving this significant coverage um so she she was very well liked and her family and friends spread the word a lot of people showed up to help search for her um eventually the search included helicopters police on horseback and bikes canine units water rescue units on rafts friends and families passed out flyers there was a reward offered which kind of kept increasing until it was eventually up to five hundred thousand dollars yeah on april 13th 2003 a couple was walking their dog um, along the San Francisco Bay, about two miles from where Scott told the detectives he had been fishing that day, and they found the body of a late-term male fetus, oh. very well-preserved. I don't like that. No. One day later, a passerby found a woman's body washed up along the shore about a mile away. This body was badly decomposed. Um, she had been decapitated. Her... Hold on. I have... Not a picture of her, but like a diagram. Um, her arms were amputated, or her arms were missing below the elbows. One foot was missing, and one of her legs was missing below the knee. So all of her limbs were missing to some degree. It sounds like maybe like a, it could have been like a boating, like getting stuck in the propeller. I don't know, with just like weird just amputations like that, they're not really uniform. Yes, interesting. Um, they never did find her head or the missing parts of her limbs. They needed to do DNA testing to discover who she was because her body was so badly decomposed. On April 18th, DNA testing proved um, that this was Lacey and that the male fetus that was found was her baby. So they did their autopsies. The date and cause of Lacey's death could not be determined because of... The decomposition she did have two cracked ribs but they couldn't determine if that was before or after death her cervix was intact the her upper torso had been emptied of organs except for the uterus um i already said extreme decomposition decapitated i put all this in here twice the pathologist who did the autopsy said that the fetus had died in utero and had eventually been expelled from her body so the baby's skin was not decomposed at all. There was some it said mutilation. I don't really know. That's all they said on the right side of his body. They believe the reason he was so well preserved, basically, was because he was in her uterus. So after she had died, her body was still protecting him, which is why he had not decomposed. Um, they looked at this. Even the pathologist looked at this as proof that he was still in the womb while she was in the water. And that's going to be important when we talk about the trial later. 
Um, this was a little bit confusing. So some information was leaked from the autopsy, which made the family pretty upset. And the police as well were like, well, now that they've leaked it, we're going to tell you more stuff. But we wish they hadn't leaked anything. So there was actually nylon tape found wrapped around the baby's neck. Um, yeah, that's the face I made when I read it. Uh, they said that it could have just been that after he was expelled, that was in the water. It was just litter in the water that he got tangled up in. Yeah. Um, the defense is going to point to this as something more important later. And there was a laceration on his body as if maybe Lacey had been stabbed in the stomach and he, like it had gotten all the way to him. But that that's conjecture. They don't really know. Um, there was meconium still in his bowels, which is, um, for people who don't know, the first like Ooh. bowel movement that babies have. After it's the born. first. Yeah, it's the first poop. It's really black and really gross. Yeah. But it's the first poop. Right, so... He didn't poop. He did not, you know... Have his first poop. Right. How many more times are you going to say his first poop? I just want everyone to know that I have a baby. And that she knows meconium is poop. I know all about meconium. So before they found the bodies, while they were still investigating, looking for them, detectives had put a tracker on Scott's car. And when the bodies were found on April 13th, they were afraid he would take off to... Mexico, because they weren't far from Mexico in this part of California. So they kind of were tracking him that day, following him, and they, he was his driving was very erratic. Whatever. They're, they're thinking... We're just gonna they're, they're because I'm looking at my notes, and I'm like, I specifically remember reading about this, and I didn't write it down. I think I got caught up in the reading and forgot to jot it down. They were keeping an eye on him the day the bodies were found and the driving was very erratic he didn't take off to mexico well that's good spoiler alert (laughs) it's such a far drive by yourself um so on april 18th as soon as the body was identified as Lacey's, scott was arrested he was near a golf course where he was going to meet his brother and father to go golfing of course it's his way of calming down Yes. yes he has a lot going on yeah also once he's in jail it's gonna be really hard to golf yeah, he had dyed his hair. He had dark hair. He had dyed his hair and his goatee blonde. Cute. And when they took him in, his car had almost $15,000 in cash, 12 Viagra tablets, survival gear, camping equipment, several changes of clothes, four cell phones. So he was going to go wrong. His driver's license and his brother's. Police Why said. Why need the Viagra? I'm sorry. I will hold up on that. Always have Viagra in your emergency kit. You're right. Um, police saw this as evidence that he was indeed planning to flee. His father said that he was living out of his car. Um, because of everything that was going on. So that's why he had the clothes and stuff. Sure. The reason he had his brother's license was so that he could get the resident discount at a golf course that he had been at uh. earlier. Mm-hmm. So when they did, um, got their warrant and did some searches and stuff, they found hair in Scott's fishing boat. There was hair on a pair of pliers that was matched to hairs from Lacey's brush at home. But it was mitochondrial DNA. So... Um, they also found this homemade anchor in his boat made from concrete. So just like a concrete block with like a chain or rope or whatever tied to it. Um, and like a 90 pack. It's not a word. What did she say? A 90 pound bag of concrete. Um, he said that he had used some of this to make that homemade anchor and used the rest to redo his driveway. The police believe he made five anchors and used four of them to sink Lacey's body, tied them to her arms and her legs. And that is why, yes, that's why her limbs were missing because eventually, yes. 
Um, they never did find the four anchors that they, they feel he used to sink Lake. That's probably because they're at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Um, June 1st, 2004. He is, or the trial begins, I mean. Prosecution maintains that he killed Lacey because of this affair that he was having with Amber Frey. The defense says there's just not enough evidence to show that Scott killed her. So the prosecution, and I, I will say, I, I do believe that Scott Peterson did this. Not a lot of everything circumstantial. Yeah. Um, and so the prosecution really focused hard on the circumstantial evidence because it's all they really had. Sharon, Lacey's mom, said that at Berkeley Marina, when they were starting the, to search the water, Scott would not acknowledge her and he would not hug her. He also refused to attend a candlelight vigil was for Lacey. Was this before or after they publicly... Re- this was before. This was earlier in the search. Yeah. Um, he I was also, say, I'd be kind of bitter. He also refused to attend a candlelight vigil for Lacey. I also think that's kind of like people handle things differently and maybe he yeah, didn't want to. I could see that. Relatives testified about his lack of emotion those first days when they were doing the search, when everybody was at the house. Um, witnesses, not just the neighbor, but other witnesses as well, said that he had told them that he had been golfing that day while he told the police and other people he had been fishing that day. Yeah, that's going to come back and bite you, buddy. Yes. And keep your story straight. In the days after Lacey's disappearance, he changed his appearance, dyed his hair blonde. He purchased a vehicle in his mother's name. He traded in Lacey's vehicle, her Rand Rover, for a pickup. Rand Rover? Land Rover. Range Rover? You said Rand Rover. Oh. Land Rover for pickup. He added some porn channels to his cable service in the days after his wife disappeared. Well, he's got to get that Viagra to... He's going through a lot, okay? He's trying to start a fresh start. And he called a realtor about selling his house. Fresh start. Um... They played recorded tapes between Amber Frey and Scott, and one of them, ap- I put in here after the disappearance, all of them were after the disappearance, because that's when she came to talk Yeah, to that us. makes sense. He told her that he was in Paris. Yeah. Um, the prosecution said that they were living beyond their means, and that they had $23,000 in credit card debt, and that this is part of his motivation. The defense said... Despite the credit card debt, which a lot of people have, they still paid all of their bills on time and they had $20,000 of credit available on other cards. So this wasn't something that was like sinking them financially. Mm-hmm. Um, the This is interesting. So the prosecution said Lacey's hair or the hair that matched Lacey's hair on the boat meant that she was her body must have been there because they claimed she had never been there while she was alive. However... A witness reported seeing Lacey alive and kicking the day before she went missing at the warehouse where the boat was. And Brocchini, one of the detectives, admitted to leaving that out of his report when the defense questioned him about it on the stand. He said that he, I don't remember what the word was that they used to write it down, but he basically just edited that out because he could not explain. Redacted? That. Yeah. Um, so that that was interesting. There were a lot of... There were articles and things and people giving interviews afterwards that were like, some of the police work on this was... Ish. Yeah. Sketchy. Yeah. Um, So there was that 90-pound bag of cement. The prosecution... Scott said he made one anchor out of that and then used the rest to pave his driveway. Prosecution said the material in the anchor did not match a sample of the concrete from the driveway. The defense had a concrete expert who said, yes, it did. (laughs) 
Yeah. Who do we believe? I, that's, it's all very interesting. I, well, I'll tell you what I think when I get to the end here. They had um, a man named Rick Chang, who's a hydrologist, in as their expert witness on tides. Rick Chang said that Lacey could very well have been dumped uh, where Scott said he was fishing for her body to be found where it was. Um, when pressed by the defense, he said that this is probable, but not precise, which, you know, tides. Mm. Kind of feels like weather, like you're not going to get a precise whatever. Um, one, of the, one of the interviews with Scott, that like a recorded interview, had no sound because nobody put batteries in the tape recorder before they interviewed him. That doesn't sound. Feels a little right. embarrassing. I feel like, can I just say what I'm feeling like? Mm-hmm. I feel like they, and by they I mean the police, firmly believed in one situation and then worked to making that true yeah Yeah. to prove that that situation happened Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that it didn't happen they just they focused in on him right away they got they i think that they got tunnel vision and they may have ignored other evidence in an effort to make their theory work yes yeah. is is what i'm sensing especially evidenced by the fact that they just omitted something from evidence because he didn't know how to what what did he say it, it, he didn't know how to make it fit with what he believed basically exactly that's exactly what i'm saying yeah if it doesn't fit in what they were saying or it doesn't fit in what their story then they just left it out mm-hmm. yeah yeah shoddy shoddy work i would say um and i think it's extra frustrating because i believe that he did it i remember when this was going on and i remember just like the general consensus was this guy did it and when i was researching this i was like i still believe that but like there was a lot of stuff they could have done differently yeah so on the defense's side i think that i'm i'm not sure but i think that he probably got arrested and like charged and sentenced for this but I wouldn't have been surprised if it ended in a mistrial simply because of all the uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. We'll find out. So the defense's um, stance was that the fetal remains were actually a full-term infant. They said somebody had kidnapped Lacey, held her until she gave birth, and then dumped the bodies. Um, there was a burglary that happened on her street that day. And they said that these burglars could have been the ones who did it. However, they actually caught the burglars and they were cleared of being involved in this. Now, they had as one of their expert witnesses, Charles March, a fertility specialist. He said the baby could not possibly have died any earlier than December 29th. He based this on a report by one of Lacey's friends who said that Lacey had a positive home pregnancy test on June 9th. So that was the whole piece of evidence behind his claim the baby is this age yeah so she can't and if she based had on his size he couldn't possibly have died before yeah. this day um obviously the prosecution criticized this way of thinking yeah and when they pointed out a typo in his report he said cut me some slack yeah you guys get a lot of slack can i yeah criminal law professor stan goldman afterwards said there were moments today that reminded me of chernobyl One of the jurors was replaced due to misconduct. They actually did independent research on the case. 
while You're not supposed to be being there. on the jury. Yeah. Um, the foreman of the jury requested his own removal because other jurors wanted him replaced. And I couldn't find much more information about that, but he said that he was getting threats and everything. So he requested to be removed from the jury. And he was. Sounds like maybe he was leading, leaning one way and they were like, be, did not want, yeah. To, but in that situation, I feel like he should have stayed. Right. Or there should have been, I don't know, some kind of an investigation. Well, there's going to be more. So November 12th, 2004, he is found guilty of first-degree murder with special circumstances for Lacey and second-degree murder for Connor. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Oh. The judge also ordered Scott to pay $10,000 to Lacey's funeral. Um, Scott had taken out life insurance on Lacey. I don't know if this was like right before she died or anything suspicious, but the judge ruled that that life insurance had to be go had to go to her mother. In 2012, he and his team filed an appeal. The California Supreme Court heard arguments for the appeal in June of 2020. So that was an eight-year process. In recent. Yeah. In August 2020, it was a unanimous decision that upheld his conviction but overturned the death sentence. Which, I don't know if this is going to be popular, but I agree with that. Because I think to get the death sentence, there should be more than circumstantial evidence. I was just saying that. Too. I was just thinking that too. I think there should be solid forensic evidence. There should be witnesses. I don't think somebody should get the death penalty based on circumstantial. I think that maybe if the police had done a better job, mm-hmm. he could have gotten the death penalty in a more. Yeah, and that was part of when they did the appeal. Part of their argument was about like the juror situation the police um but they you know upheld the conviction overturned the death sentence in september 2021 he was resentenced life in prison without parole for lacy and 15 years to life for connor in october 2022 he was moved from san quentin's death row where he had been held to mule creek state prison so here's just a couple i'm pretty much wrapping up at this point um in 2006 a congressman, William E. Dannemeyer, wrote a letter to the California Attorney General saying that Lacey had been killed by members of a satanic cult. Mm, of course. Yes, I found the letter and I read it. And he really was like, you have to uphold justice. Did you even consider that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's right there, guys. Everyone, pay attention. It's as obvious as the nose on my face. In 2006, Sharon published a biography about Lacey called For Lacey, A Mother's Story of Love, Loss, and Justice. I did not read it, but if you want to, that's what it was. Her father and her stepfather both died in 2018. And there have been a ton of different episodes on various true crime shows made about this case. Pretty much anyone that you can think of, they've done an episode on Lacey Peterson. Yeah, that sounds right. I just fact-checked your fact. Thank you. By saying it sounds right. You're so smart. So I I feel that Scott Peterson did it. I think that it's more than reasonable to assume that he is the one who killed her. I think that the police could have done a much better job than they did. Yeah, I think that they shouldn't have gotten tunnel vision so quickly. Yes, to the exclusion of all other evidence. Because the yeah. thing is, too, I feel like... If there's other stuff like this witness and other things, like if you follow, I feel like if you have conflicting evidence like that, you should want to follow it to 
A, be able to like rule it out as being important, or B, just make sure there's nothing really important that you're missing. But like that's what I'm saying. I think that they got tunnel vision, and if it didn't fit their story, yeah. And then you risk like undermining your whole case. Exactly. Well, yeah, that's why they tell you not to do that shit. Yeah. But that's that's what I got for you guys on Scott Peterson. Well, thank you for sharing, Lacey. You're very welcome. Are you ready to go into mine? Yes. Okay. Who are you telling us about? We're going to talk about John's Sharp, which I... So I had no idea what I was going to do for this episode, so I searched, like, murderous fathers. And I came up with a list, and I happened to choose him. That's kind of sad. Came up with a list. Yeah. You didn't search deadly daddies? No. I knew... I locked into Scott Peterson when we talked. I think you both chose yours quick, and that's yeah. when I was like, oh, crap. Um... Anyway, so we're going to go to Australia. Oh. Down under. Oh, good night, um, Mike. I you don't have to keep that in there. Didn't read <laughs> I'm him. going to. I didn't read into him before I started like researching. Oh. So this one's kind of heavy. Oh, great. What else is you new? Always, I know. I don't know why I do this to myself. Anyway. Bailey style. So August 2005 in Australia, the Supreme Court sentenced John Sharp to life in prison with a minimum of a non-parole with a minimum of non-parole years of 33 years. Um, After he pled guilty for the murder of his wife and daughter. So, 33 years in prison and then possibility of parole. Yes. Um, The judge described his crimes as too awful to contemplate. So, backtracking a year. It that's like the le- least amount of jail time. Probably because it's Australia. Yeah. Because yours is a life sentence. Yeah, life and then f- for one of them and then yeah. 15 for... And mine is like 209 years. Yeah. You got the most for sure. Um, oh, win. <laughs> well, mine also killed like three people. Anyway. And lied about it. He pled guilty, so he may have gotten like less because of that. Yeah. Um, You know how they... They, like, make deals and stuff. Yeah. So, March 23rd, 2004, 41-year-old Anna Sharp and 37-year-old John Sharp had gone to bed in their home in Mornington, Australia. At some point in the night, John left the bed going to his backyard garage. He returned with his spear gun and shot his wife Anna in the head at point-blank range. The spear gun? As one does. Feels disrespectful. So we're gonna dive into more of that, but let's let's backtrack even more. Oh, let's go back to the beginning. Bailey style. Feels disrespectful. Yeah, I don't like. I mean, the murder is in itself, but the spear gun to the head. I feel like it gets any, worse. I feel like when it's like it's gonna mutilate their body. That's upsetting. Yeah. But so with that, like a spear gun wouldn't mutilate the body because it's moving so fast. It would it's like probably an arrow. Go. Yeah. yeah, it's like but, an arrow. Like you, didn't you say to the head? Yes. Gonna fuck up her face. I mean, yeah. Well, that feels upsetting. Okay, so Anna was actually from New Zealand, and I couldn't really find a lot of background on her before she met John, which always upsets me because who cares about John? We should be focusing on the victim, not John. Um, But Anna and John met while working together at a Commonwealth bank in Australia. They married in October 1994, and in August 2002, they welcomed their daughter Gracie uh, Lewis Sharp. Gracie suffered from hip dysplasia, requiring her to wear a corrective harness as an infant. Um, hip dysplasia is when the 
hip socket is too shallow to cover the head of the femur. So this allows the hips to like pop out, unfortunately. Oh, that sounds painful. Yeah, it is. Um, the pain caused it to be very difficult for Gracie to like eat and cry. I mean, eat and sleep. Crying infant constantly adds a lot of stress yeah. to a relationship and parents' mental health. Um, so it's kind of understandable if they had like concerns and frustrations and all sure. that. Anna sought counseling for this, you know, healthy way, while John stewed in his anger and frustration. So, sure. not super healthy. Different strategy. Yeah, you know. Um, in late 2003, Anna became pregnant again, much to John's surprise. Um, and we'll dive Much a to bit John's more. surprise. Was he not involved? Well, he felt some type of way about it. Mm. So she just kept getting pregnant. I don't know. I don't know how that She's happened. So fertile. Um, in 2004, because she found out she was pregnant late in 2003. In 2004, John purchases a spear gun from a local dealer, plus a second spear. He had no no. He had like no noted previous interest in spear fishing, and was only known to have test fired the gun once in his backyard. Interesting. Um. So March 21st, 2004. John and the girls attended a family party for their nephew. Family members reported there were no arguments of any kind. Everything seemed fine. Hunky dory. Happy, yeah. March 23rd, John and Anna argued before retiring to bed around 10 p.m. Once Anna was asleep, John left the bed, proceeded to his backyard garage to retrieve the spear gun. He fired the spear into his wife's head at point-blank range. Fired the spear, it was from a distance of a few centimeters, into her left temple. Noticing Anna was still breathing, he fired again in her head, killing her and her unborn child, who was going to be named Francis and was a boy. He then covered her body in towels and went downstairs to sleep on a sofa bed, because it's exhausting. Yeah, and you don't want to sleep in the same bed. He really tuckered himself out. Yeah. March, the next day, March 24th, John took Gracie to daycare then proceeded to remove the spears from Anna's head. He then buried his pregnant wife's body in a shallow grave in the backyard. Hey, mm. that's what my guy did. And over the next few day, four days, he cared for his wife. His sorry, he, over the next four days, he cared for his daughter alone. During this time, he purchased another spear gun. It always blows my mind when people bury the bodies in their own backyard. Like, wouldn't you notice, like... Don't you think when they come to investigate, it's, like, the first place they're gonna look? We buried the dog back there. Yeah. Oh, we're gonna take your word for it. We're not gonna check that out, for sure. Yeah, it's fine. It's all good. Just because it's, like, a human adult side. Don't think about it. We don't need to look. Um, so March 27th, this is, like, four days after Anna has been murdered, the, uh, the piece of shit put his almost two-year-old to bed. Then proceeded to drink several glasses of whiskey and coke, loaded the spear gun, and then fired at Gracie, penetrating her skull. Uh, this is a trigger warning, just FYI. You always have those. I know, I'm sorry. Gracie then wakes up, uh. screaming, um, and father of the year over here retrieved the two spear shafts that he used on Anna, and then fired them both in Gracie's head. Still alive... He pulls one of the spears out of Gracie and then fires again, finally killing her. Why was he so bad at it? I don't know. 
I mean, once you hit them once, you you really got to follow through. I mean, you've already committed. Yeah. Yeah. So then the next day. Lacey has other. She doesn't like the sarcasm. <laughs> I'm angry with him. I know. The next day, he purchased a roll of duct tape, two tarps, and a chain stall from a local store, which I feel like if you work at a hardware store and you see someone, like, purchasing these items, it should be, like, a red flag. Um, He returned to Gracie's room and pulled the spears from her head uh, whilst holding a towel in front of his face. He didn't want to get the blood on him. He couldn't bear to see his child. Oh. It also said in, like, the articles that, like, he had to, like, he got drunk so, like, he could do it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. He's a delicate angel. Poor guy. He also, his photos look like he's a fucking creep, but whatever. I'll show you those later. Um, he wrapped Gracie's body in a garbage bag and a tarp. Then he exhumed Anna's body and dismembered her, then wrapping the remains in tarp and disposing them in a nearby waste disposal site. John then sent a fake email to Anna's family in New Zealand, posing as her to create the impression that she was alive and well. Her family could instant, like, instantly tell that this was wrong and was very suspicious and called the police immediately. Good. Um, they <laughs> got a suspicious email. Let me call the police real quick. They questioned John, um, and he would tell the police that Anna had moved to a nearby like city like called Chelsea. Um, with a, their daughter and denied any knowledge or involvement of her disappearance. Um, I'm not sure if he was still trying, like, I don't know his motives for this part, but, like, I think he was just trying to be, like, spiteful at his mother-in-law. Um, he arranged for flowers to arrive, to be gifted to his mother-in-law for her birthday as his wife, like, under his wife's name. Oh, I, I think mean, he was already trying to still be, like... She's not dead. Look, she's still sending flowers to her mother. So, in May, he did several media interviews, playing the grieving husband, speaking about his wife and child's disappearance, claiming he spoke to his wife a week earlier, and he appealed for anyone with information to come forward. He claimed that she had run off with another man. Oh. Because they always... Good, let's smear her name while we're at it. He... There's a quote here that he goes, Anna, our marriage may be over, but I still love you, and you are the mother of our beautiful daughter, Gracie, whom we both adore more than anyone else. Yet you could shoot a spear gun in her head. Three times. Four times? Four. Four times. In June, police started looking into him and finally arrested him on June 22nd. Good. In his first interview, he continued to deny any knowledge of their whereabouts, but in subsequent yeah, interviews, and after speaking to his family, he admitted to both the murders. He said he killed his wife because she was controlling and moody. She was pregnant. Bitch. And their marriage was unhappy. He said he was unhappy about the new pregnancy and resented his wife and the fetus. Okay. Then get divorced. Yeah. Why don't they ever just think of that? Why, why is it, you know what, I gotta eliminate my family. I, I think... That they think that it's easier to kill their family than pay alimony and child support. Well, they're wrong. Yeah, I agree. Because, you know, prison. Um, as it comes to Gracie, he said, I was thinking of taking care of Gracie by myself. Like, I guess, like, raising her. Uh, and just amongst all this madness, that's when I lost the plot. Which I assume he was just like, no, I can't do that. I need to kill her. 
Um, the police did conduct a three-week search of the dump. They did find both of the bodies. Um, circling back to the beginning of my story, in August 2005, the Supreme Court of Victoria sentenced him to life in prison. He did plead guilty on both counts of murder. He resides actually in protective custody while in prison due to the threats from the fellow in prisoners, which, good. Yeah. yeah. Why, good. Why does he need, why do we need to protect him? I don't know, because he should, like, die old in there, I guess. I don't know. Um, Anna's family members thought John may have killed his wife because she discovered him abusing their daughter. I only saw this in, like, one article that I found. Yeah. Um, but it goes he on seems to- like the kind of person who would get frustrated by somebody with a disability. Yeah. Well, it also goes on to say that this claim comes from family letters revealed Reveal Sharp had a history of abusing children. He didn't say what type of abuse, but I don't know. Um, he is eligible for parole in 2037, so we're getting close. Um, but Anna and Gracie are buried together, and they are actually under Anna's maiden name, not the name of Sharp. So Good. fuck John. Yeah, um, yeah that, like, that would annoy me. If my husband ever murders me, please drop that part of my yeah. life. I got you. Thank you. And everybody on the record can know that that's my my dying wish. If he kills me, change your name change back. my name back. And that that's the case of John Sharp and Anna. Well, that was and Gracie. I thought of something for mine that I forgot just now while you were. I'm I'm loving that we keep going. Back. I know. Um, the well, whatever. His um Scott Peterson's sister-in-law, so his brother's wife, is still to this day convinced of his innocence. And has actually... His brother's wife? Yes. She's known Scott since he was a teenager. She's been involved with her brother that long and says that he absolutely could not have done it. She um, dropped whatever her career was and started going to law school so that she could, like, be part of helping him get out of jail and has pretty much, like, thrown her whole energy into proving that he should not have been convicted for this. Um Meanwhile, and I don't know about all of his siblings because there were six just kind of scattered about. Um, his one sister, who I think was like closest in age to him, said that he is exactly where he belongs. But I thought it was interesting that there was somebody in his corner who, who was like fully, like as in his corner as you can get if she maybe, gave up her career I to mean, become a lawyer. We don't know, but like maybe she still sees him as like that teenager and she's like, well, Oh, I had like, a different thought. Or maybe she's in love with him. I was thinking he has a history of affairs. I mean, if that's the case, though, and she was one, if I were her, I would absolutely not draw any attention to myself in his case. You don't want to be the sister-in-law that the guy accused of murdering his wife had an affair with. But there are people that, like, fall in love with, like, murderers in prison all the time, so. You can't stop love. Okay. That's why when you were saying, like, I don't know why he needs to be in protective custody... Because there are some people who, if he was murdered in prison, there would be an uproar. Mm-hmm. They would be appalled. Billy and the Bull. Um, hey! Circle back. Uh, Alright, so that was Deadly Daddies. Yes. Well, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Hope your dad's better than these Deadly Daddies. Yes. And I would like to just say... Okay. Alright. Alright, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Bye, everybody. Bye. Well, that was sinister. And we were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening.